Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Matt and Tabitha Compton, Compton Family Wines in Philomath. Uh, it's August 19th, 2020. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Uh, first question for you both, and the kind of most important question for what we're doing here is why wine? You want to we're, oh, well, we're big foodies, so <laughs> we love food and making stuff from scratch. And Honestly, we have a weird story for me. I was in horses and came to wine. I mainly followed Matt. I'm not normally a follower, but I, I did follow Matt in his kind of winemaking ventures. For me, it was, uh, grew up in a farming background, uh, dairy farm in Wisconsin in the 80s. Actually, I was born in New Jersey. We moved to Wisconsin. I uh, got into the dairy farming industry. Tough time in the 80s to get into the dairy farming industry. Lost that, went back to New Jersey. Uh, but I got the farming bug. So I also enjoyed cooking, so it's kind of farming and cooking that really uh, got me into the wine business. So what I ended up doing was uh, when I always like to say, uh, my parents made it far west as Wisconsin. I made it about as far west as the road would go and came out to Corvallis uh, and hooked up with the university and started learning about grape growing and winemaking there at Oregon State University. And so uh, it just, kind of evolved for me and really enjoyed the value-added aspect that came with winemaking, uh, seeing how it's more of a farmer first. Mm-hmm. I'll add to that for you, because this is what I think is funny that you always say the fact that he wanted to be a farmer without the animals that he could leave <laughs> and walk away from at some point. So, and, then, and then I was a horse person, so yeah. Was there a moment for you when grape farming became, what, what was it about grape farming specifically that, that kind of appealed to you? Was there a moment when that became what you wanted to do? Was it be, did you go to Oregon State because of that? So I followed a friend of mine, as it meant, uh, he was coming out to Oregon State University Department of Horticulture, uh, and he, I essentially just followed, actually I took a trip around the country the summer of 95, and uh, knew my friend was coming to Corvallis, and I took a trip around the country, about 14,000 miles, and I we just did a big circle, and I knew my friend was coming to Corvallis, so we actually hit a camp spot in Newport. We hit many camp spots along the way, but uh, we hung out in Newport. It was, in May, it was in May when we came through, and uh, it was a normal Oregon spring misty day and stuff like that, and great temperature. Drove through Corvallis and checked out. I'm like, yeah, I could probably do this. So uh, later that fall, when, you know, got back home from our trip, and then later that fall I uh, packed up, and actually his girlfriend and I came across country. And uh, so I got out here, sat down with his major professor at Oregon State University and said, I need a job. And so, but having the farming background, uh, he hooked me up with uh, Scott Robbins, who's the farm manager at the Department of Horticulture. And it just kind of grew from there. I worked on the Lewis Brown farm, which was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's grapes there, tree fruits, all different types of crops, uh, berries, vegetables. And um, opportunity came up to take care of Woodhall Vineyard. Mm-hmm. This was in uh, this, essentially the fall of 95 and um, 
it was, I pretty much started in 1996. And uh, not knowing anything about grapes, but Scott, I think I impressed Scott by just being able to handle equipment, mm -hmm. be, um, be able to really do many things I on the farm. I tell people that about you is, and when I talk to people about our wine and how you started is the fact that you didn't get the job because you knew anything about wine or growing grapes. It was, he knew how to drive a tractor. Mm -hmm. he, he knew he was a way around equipment. So essentially, I, uh, yeah, so at the time, Woodhall Vineyard, um, OSU was just taking over. Uh, it, was, it happened over a number of years uh, that was donated from the Baines family. Uh, so about that time is when uh, OSU had full control. And so there was about 14 acres of grapes in. So I essentially immersed myself on the hillside all alone down in Alpine, <laughs> uh, pruning grapes and taking it all the way through. And it's a great place, it's a great place to uh, work and really learn about growing grapes. And, um, and like Tabitha said, it was kind of nice, you know, you can get some downtime until you start a winery, then you have no downtime. <laughs> <laughs> With your background, was there anything unique about grapes? Anything, what, what did you have to learn that, that was different? Well, I, I mean, again, I grew up on a dairy farm, but I was, you know, I was uh, more into uh, driving the tractors and, you know, working the ground. I enjoyed that aspect mm -hmm. um, as a kid. And so, I, when I, I did go to school I, uh, for horticulture, I was going to school back east. So my first year uh, in college, I went to a small college, actually played Division Three football for a year and went for horticulture. And I uh, realized, eh, the glory days are kind of over. And uh, horticulture back east was more of, uh, you know, ornamentals and golf courses and all that kind of stuff. And I was more, again, into food Mm -hmm. and cooking and I envisioned seeing doing a CSA type of thing or something like that back east and um, but back east they're growing more houses than farms so that was kind of the drive to come west and see what I could do out here and I think uh, made a nice choice. <laughs> so as you as you kind of you're working at Woodhall Vineyard you're kind of developing a taste for uh, for farming grapes tell me what what happens next and at what point do you two meet? Is that still a little ways down the road? Or? No, that was, that was early on, so. Well, with Oregon State and Woodhall Vineyard, they, um, their research vineyard, when they didn't use for research, was a home winemaking. People from all over the Northwest would come and pick the grapes and process the fruit there and then take it home and ferment and make their wine at home. So you were managing that as well. And yeah, so a, he, that's why you kind of got the wine start there. And you mentioned Scott Robin. Scott was very instrumental in kind of getting going and learning about winemaking too. So yeah, I mean, just more on the, I guess the Woodhall thing, with just the great experience was working with graduate students, mm -hmm. uh, uh, working with the researchers, research assistants, uh, Carmel Gandolfi was there at the time. Uh, so it, it really kind of structured me uh, foundation-wise within the industry, uh, really liked this area. Uh, you know, working with graduate students like uh, Patrick Taylor, who's you know still a wine, who's a winemaker here, uh, Jessica Howe, or yeah, Jessica Howe, um, or no, Sandrock. No, sorry. <laughs> There's a so yeah, Jessica Sandrock was a graduate student at the time. Um, who else was there? Um, Michael McCauley, who's down in Southern Oregon now. There's a big group of uh, people that are still really active in the industry, which was you know was great time. Um, and where there was a lot of graduates. So they had a lot of research projects down there, so working with them, working with the home winemakers, whatever fruit wasn't being used for research, 
we were selling the home winemaker still, so gosh, that was a lot of work in that, so trying to maintain all of that. <laughs> so You started as an amateur winemaker early on doing, like right, that first year, right? Or was it? Yeah, we started. So we started amateur winemaking and involved from there. And you did do beer too. When I met you, you were doing more beer than wine. Yeah. <laughs> Easier sources. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, tell me about that kind of initial foray into winemaking. What did you think of, of, the, uh, of winemaking and, and what made you want to pursue it further? Uh, well, it, I guess it, you know, it, it ties into the whole having your own garden and cooking from your own garden, that type of thing. So the same thing with the wine. Uh, so even currently, so that so it's evolved for us from, um, from you know, working at the university. So I started a vineyard management business that gave us access to the fruit. We were delivering fruit to other local wineries. And we're kind of like, oh, let's start, you know, maybe let's start a winery and, uh, you know, not deliver the, sell the fruit, but keep it for ourselves and see what we can start to do. So it's, for me, the winemaking part was just that, it's the things that was already growing is do, getting back to that, you know, building something, a business where you can get that value added. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I always felt like in farming, if you're going to be a small farmer, you know, for the most part, you got to figure out a way to do that value added aspect. And so it just really fell into that whole cooking and mm -hmm. um, thing that I already enjoyed. And so I guess, you know, what's great about, I say I cut my teeth on, you know, or I didn't really know much again about wine, grapes growing or anything from back, you know, back east. It was uh, not that popular. So, <laughs> and in the family, it wasn't, you know, we weren't a wine consuming family. So, but, um, so I cut my teeth on Pinot Noir. I think it was just, mm -hmm. it was just perfect. You know, it's just, it's like, that Oregon Pinot Noir is just like that fresh fruit, you know, fresh fruit. And uh, so, you know, we really enjoy picking nice, you know, fresh fruit, and, you know. So just same thing with the wine grapes. And then, mm -hmm. so what I try to do is just, you know, as most Oregon winemakers say, you know, do all the work in the vineyard and minimal handling in the winery. So mm -hmm. it just plays in really well to, I guess, my personality of being able to go out, farm a lot, and then bring it in, process it, and just let it do its thing as mm -hmm. Ages. Hmm. All right, so what, Tabitha, what point do you come into the story here? I'm really bad with years. Both of us kind of are. I think you're a little bit better. But it was we the met. second year then, or the end of the first year. So I was going, I was going to Lynn Benton. She was as well. And um, 90s, I was, so when I was also, I took classes at OSU when I was here. And then also I uh, was going to Lynn Benton. So I just take, taking general horticultural type of classes that had OSU. Um, Barney Watson was there at the time. They just started the, uh, um, the winemaking class. I took one of those winemaking classes, you know, and I took, mm -hmm. I took classes that kind of fit in. So I was taking horticulture, some horticultural classes at Lynn Benton. And uh, so we had a mutual friend that was in one of my classes who's doing horticulture and also um, with Tabitha, a friend, well, a friend from horses with, of Tabitha. Mm -hmm. And um, this was in 97 or so. So I was out here a couple of years. Okay, that was before that book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere in the mid 90s. <laughs> it's in the mid 90s. Sure. Oh, yeah. And uh, so essentially, uh, she set us up on a blind date. And. Um, I thought he was somebody else, though. He <laughs> was a cowboy and Wranglers and a redhead. And he, that was not Matt. That was lovely. So I didn't tell him until a few weeks in. 
to us dating pretty consistently that he's not the guy I thought he was. <laughs> but our first date was amazing. He made, I never had risotto, and he made risotto from scratch, and it was awesome. <laughs> and that was probably the night we talked the most ever. <laughs> so what did you think of the wine industry as you started, the grape industry as you started to kind of become aware of what Matt was doing? Well, we, I mean, we started a lot together. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, again, I was pretty active in horses, so mm -hmm. I, I had my own business, um, but I always supported him with the wine making. We, we would do it together. I mean, I love, it was a huge eye-opening experience from going out and picking for years out at Woodhall and processing your own stuff, and then once we made it and became not amateurs anymore, mm -hmm. going out and picking with the crew with their buckets running up and down the hills, I, I quickly you realize I was impeding on their, on their money and their space and got the glare. So um, yeah, I, I was involved early on mm -hmm. too. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just love Pinot Noir. I think it should be a food group <laughs> with wine and, and chocolate to me is a food group of Pinot. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So let's talk about that vineyard management business for a second. Uh, I'm curious, um, what was kind of your philosophy for vineyard management at the start? Did you what kind of farming practices, and who were you who were you managing for? Who are you, how are you finding clients? Well, one of the other great things about being down here in Corvallis is uh, people don't even really think we're in the Willamette Valley, which isn't great for marketing-wise. <laughs> but industry-wise, uh, there's a number of vineyards in the area and a uh, number of older vineyards, um, you know, plantings back in from, well, Woodhall uh, Vineyard was planted in the, uh, started in the mid 70s. Uh, also, there's a vineyard just south of us called Mary's Peak Vineyard, Roger Conart, who's started, you know, in the late 70s. So, uh, had access to all these vineyards. There were a lot of small vineyards in the area. There wasn't a lot of competition for those vineyards. Um, so, there was an opportunity to, um, start a vineyard management company, help manage. A lot of people in the area have smaller vineyards. They like the idea of having a vineyard. Mm -hmm. They realize how much work it is, so then I could come in and help them out and uh, manage the vineyard, deliver the fruit. Um, so they're, and there's, it's growing in the areas, rather small. Uh, continues to be a lot of uh, people wanting to establish something off their property. Uh, increase the property value or get into the industry. So, um, wasn't my so the core base of the, that evolved from my vineyard management company was more ended up feeding our winery. So when we started the winery, we started about 250 cases. Um, I, yeah, we started about 250 cases. Now we're up to about 9,000 cases or so. So, you know, it, it's helped evolve. It's helped grow the winery. Uh, we're able to grow the fruit less expensive than we're able to buy it for, so that's worked out well for the business plan, for our business model, and... We literally have a lot of people, though, that just come and know that Matt's doing his vineyard management company and, like, walk in the door and say, you know, I'm, we're a big tree farm area, so they want to kind of convert over it. Mm -hmm. I know about 10 years ago, it was kind of stressed with tree farming, so we would get a lot more of it, but everybody, you know, in Oregon is popular now with... So yeah, it's not, and, it's so. not growing here as fast as it is up north, which is nice. Um, but yeah, so it just, uh, it, there's you know, not as many wineries, obviously, and all that, but it's still the Willamette Valley. It's still, uh, it's still a great place you know, to grow grapes. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a number of different sites, so they kind of each bring in a different 
perspective you know, to our Willamette Valley blends. Uh, we do barrel selection and vineyard selections and stuff like that for some of our higher ends as well. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of old, you know, a lot of vines, old vines. Uh, this is so much fun to work with. Even the um, first vineyard I picked up, um, Deerhaven Vineyard uh, 2001, you know, that was a young vineyard at the time now, so, you know, 25 year old vineyard now. So um, mm -hmm. just seeing that progress and stuff, mm -hmm. which is kind of the base of our, um, of our production. Mm -hmm. So tell me about getting started uh, as you graduating from amateur winemaking to the next step. Tell me about taking that next step and sort of what was the, how did you go about establishing a wine brand and kind of what were you looking for as you got started? What were the goals as you got started making professional wine? So we, so again, I started the vineyard management company in 2001 and actually at the time, 2001 is the year where I left Oregon State University and I went and managed uh, Benton Lane's Vineyard. Mm. Uh, and I managed Benton Lane Vineyard. I was the vineyard manager there from 2001 to 2006. Uh, so in that meantime, so I started the vineyard management company as well. And so a lot of it also kind of came down to is just uh, how much work has to be done in the vineyard. Uh, it's a lot of hand labor and obviously more hand labor than owners can do themselves and all that. And so uh, we need crews. So our you know, having a crew, keeping them busy, mm -hmm. uh, so you don't have to bring in new people all the time and retrain them. So a lot of the goal tended to even be just working around trying to keep crews busy and just hooking up with other local vineyards as well, even just to help, you know, facilitate that. Uh, just to help keep the quality there from consistent workers. I think a lot of it too, you, we, we honestly had conversations of, I kind of pushed him to do it and he's like, we don't have the money. We can't do this. There's no way we can physically do it. And we didn't want to just jump into it and get in a ton of debt too. So it was, it was a lot of thought and a lot of planning before we did it. Um, but in the home winemaking group is kind of a group of friends. Like Matt had a lot of talent. A lot of, they even said that, you know, he made some of the best white wines um, than any of the others had seen to toot your own horn. I'll do it for you. <laughs> you know, there was, there was that aspect of kind of pushing to, to do it. And, and, and we started small. We've only grown as much as we could afford to. We, mm -hmm. we didn't come at it with a ton of money. We, didn't, we, were, we were young when we started, so we, we didn't. So, we used what we had and what we could yeah. get out of our houses and squeak any money so we So we had could. a really nice community. Again, the home wine making thing, um, the university system working with you know, graduate students there. Uh, you, there's another gentleman at the time, uh, this graduate student called Patrick Schoenberger, who was from Switzerland, and he was a roommate of mine for a while and stuff too, so I learned a lot from him. He's uh, been around winemaking for a long time, came here for graduate work, and uh, just that he had a great deep philosophy, uh, you know, working at Benton Lane, you know, working with Gary Horner there. Uh, also then, Gary moved on, and we had uh, another Damien North winemaker from Australia came up, uh, who learned a lot from them, uh, just, you know, just, listening asking questions a lot you know being involved and learning how you know the way the system goes you know mm -hmm. and the amateur winemaking um you know which there's a big group of that in corvallis you know large large group there you know that does this um different groups as well too and mm -hmm. stuff and so um you know working with them uh so so it evolved to 
the vineyard management company, it gives, again, it gives access to fruit. 2004, uh, we started this, we started in this building, uh, and we actually were looking in Corvallis at the time. Uh, we started with another couple, and our goal was to... We started with another couple and another, we've gone through a few different names, too. <laughs> and so we started, we started with uh, another couple, and we came into this building for the production and stuff that we started a um, wine bar in Corvallis at the time too. And so we... That was in 2005? 2000, yep, 2005. So we came in here in 2004, started the wine bar in 2005. Uh, a lot going on for us at the time. <laughs> yeah, we just had our first child too, so... First it child. Was, <laughs> let's just dive home, all the way in. Yeah. Homeowner, first child, uh, winery. winery. Yeah. Uh, she was still doing horse. No, yeah, ma- still, still inv- even though we had, she had her first child, she still was involved with the horses. Uh, I was managing Benton Lane Vineyard as a full-time employment, plus the vineyard management, plus we were doing this. So obviously we got it, we got it in over our heads. Kind oh, of, and you were on the live and Salmon Safe board. That's when I finally said something. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> so, so anyhow, we, uh, yeah, so we split, we kind of divided off with the other couple, let them keep the wine bar. We kept the winery, and so then we started as Sahaley Wine Cellars, and then so that was our first rebranding. Was uh, we let them keep the name, mm-hmm. and we came out then with our brand called Spinder Cellars. Mm-hmm. And so again, we, were, we just started really small, about 240 cases or so, and then uh, once we came with Spindrift, um, then we took on you know a little bit of investment money and stuff like that, and started growing it slowly mm-hmm. off of that. You talked earlier about the sort of the some of the, the advantages disadvantages of being here as opposed to being in the northern part of the valley. Tell me about getting Spindrift started and did you have was it easy to find people to sell to? Did you have a hard time establishing the brand? Well, we picked this spot in uh, Philomath. We're right downtown, uh, and at the, actually at the right now the highway goes right by our door. Uh, at the time, it wasn't actually going by the door. We were, uh, the highway was still back up on Main Street. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, this Highway 20 is right here. So it's the main thoroughway through the um, valley mm-hmm. to the coast. So obviously you get a lot of cars going by. So we thought we'd get good exposure. Uh, but we knew they weren't gonna be driving right by our place, but we knew it was coming that they were gonna change the highway. Mm-hmm. So uh, that came with time. Uh, just the easy, you know, without us owning our own property, um, you know, and so it just, it really uh, kind of worked out well here to get established. Started a nice local client, um, you know, it really, our client base nicely built with us very well. We've got a great, have this work, put together a great little wine club. Mm-hmm. Um, and that continues to grow and they're all very supportive locally. And even through this COVID time that we're in right now, um, yeah, they're keeping they, us going. They've just been very supportive, which has been great. So yeah, so brand establishment, you know, then, you know, we had to get to the point of distribution and all that. And so uh, probably went through those struggles. I guess maybe the big thing is, you know, the story is just we're, we're not an AVA down here. We haven't established our own AVA. We're just Willamette Valley. So I guess maybe one of the things that against us marketing wise is we're just not able to tell the new trendy story behind a new AVA and why we're, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and actually as Tabitha said, we're, we were, I was on the live board back, uh, back when it first started. Mm-hmm. Um, able to, it was great there again, just be around 
Ted Castile, um, uh, Al McDonald, you know, and Carmel Canal, you know, all these people and help stop, you know, so just a great learning opportunity there too. And somehow I guess I contributed something because they, <laughs> they allowed me to be on the board. So, but uh, yeah, so, you know, so there again, um, I'm a big supporter of the program. We're not a part of the program anymore just because we have so many different sites and to get each, it then just, I guess the uh, sustainability and the financial aspect for us, um, you know, just, we just haven't been able to keep it going, but I'm fully supportive of that program, of that farming style. Uh, it's the farming style that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so, with to add to that, with, we started our own, um, we, we, early on, I did all of our own sales and distribution, which I, sh I thought would be fun and cool, um, but then I had a child too, and you can't just take your kid everywhere um, <laughs> selling out on the street, so that was, that was kind of short-lived, and then we uh, started our own distribution company, which is Small World Wine Company Distribution, and we had under our, the OLCC license, under the winery, you, you can do something like that. So we did that, and we had different reps all around Oregon. Just, I mean, just another thing to add because we weren't busy enough mm -hmm, to manage mm -hmm. that and have our own distribution company. <laughs> um, so we did that for quite a while, and that was fairly successful. And that just kind of got us going with that. And then, um, and that was all within in-state. Yes, yeah. So we were all we in-state from Portland down to uh, Southern Oregon. Uh, selling our brand along with some other Oregon wineries, mm -hmm. had a few sale roots reps and stuff, and mm -hmm. so. But that was that was when it was fun to distrib distribute because people were contacting you. We, early on, we've gotten some good ratings in one enthusiast and one spectator. So distributors outside of the state would just contact us, mm -hmm. which was awesome. But it just doesn't really happen that way so much anymore, just because everybody's getting great reviews and it's a saturated market. But that mm -hmm. that was fun times when you get those phone calls and can <laughs> make those relationships of of the distribution channels mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. yeah so it we i guess we're we hit we hit the time we were pretty lucky you know starting in the early 2000s you know there still weren't as many wineries um so oregon was starting to blossom and you know grow you know even still growing back east you know i go back east and go to the liquor store or wine shop wherever and you know oregon would be down still in a corner or something like that but um, but it's, it was definitely in that time where it was really starting to grow thanks to all the work of all the original pioneers, you know, they get it growing. Mm -hmm. And um, actually when I moved out here, you know, people were like, Oregon, where's that? <laughs> so, you know, they're still, but it, and so it's, uh, it's greatly grown and, uh, you know, and again with the ABAs, you know, so the stories continue to grow. Mm -hmm. And the live thing, you know, I think was a great story as well. Um, but what I found is, you know, when they go and do, sales out of state, you know, then, you know, you talk about sustainability and all that kind of stuff, then you start talking about live, and then, oh, then people are really curious about that. So you almost start telling that story more than you're telling your own story, but it, it all folds in. And, uh, you know, just how the great idea that Oregon is, you know, very sustainable and green and all that kind of stuff in the small family thing, hopefully we're able to mm -hmm. keep that for the future mm -hmm. and um, maintain that, you know, and even improve upon that, you know, that team, that idea. So you both both have had a love for Pinot Noir from from the start. I'm curious as you as you grew uh, and as you scaled, tell me about adding other things. What else you wanted to make, and what else you've made over the years, and and sort of how why why you've chosen what you've what you've chosen. 
So our main production, obviously, is we're in the Lambin Valley, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris. Uh, luckily, Pinot Blanc, luck, uh, Pinot Blanc for a while was going to Barney Watson when he was at Taiyi. Oh, and, yeah, I remember you saying, you're like, then, we have Pinot Blanc, I don't know what to do with it. I'm like, you're going to make it. So luckily, yeah, we made it. And I always enjoy Pinot Blanc. And, yeah, it's one of my favorite white wines. So, yeah, it's my favorite, too. So, uh, you know, luckily, you know, we were already, uh, they stopped producing the Pinot Blanc. And so we were, so this we were is the Pinot that. Blanc from Deerhaven that we were already selling off to somebody yeah, else. Up uh, to the Barney. Yeah, that to time. Barney. Uh, so that's when the stress of, oh, gosh, now I don't have a set person to buy it, what do we do? And that's kind of where we started of making sure that whatever we grew, we were, we're bringing yeah, in. we were bringing in and processing on our own. And by that time, our wine club was pretty good that we could run it through them and be able to have that reassurance to sell the product for the most part. Mm -hmm. Then there was Tabitha, you know, would like to see some more other red offerings and stuff like that for the taster room. So we were running over to Walla Walla for a while and picking up some Syrahs and stuff like that picked up some big reds from Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. And that's all mostly been for the- Wine club. For the wine club and just more variety for mm -hmm. people, you know, tasting room wise. I was just on the phone with somebody yesterday, literally, and they said, I'm looking at your website and I can't believe you have 22 products. <laughs> I was just like, oof. <laughs> and we just tried to downsize because we rebranded again. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. So we do get excited about new things. I, I, I'm trying to, the selling is the, is the Tricky My, part, but again, with our wine club, we've, we've been okay so far. <laughs> Myron Redford's got a little bit of Alvarino off his vineyard right now, and mm -hmm. it's been available. It's like, okay, yeah, that'd be fun to make. So. <laughs> I think he does have a hard time saying no. He gets excited about making it, though. Like my Scott Robbins says, for you know, it's like kids in the candy store. It's hard to say no, you know, mm -hmm. type of thing. And especially when you're, you know, with all the home wine makers and stuff too. When they're down there picking, and like, oh yeah, that'd be fun to make. That'd be fun to make. And so you just. And Woodhall was an interesting spot for that, that type of theory, too, because uh, when Frank and Betty Baines planted that, there were just so many different varieties in there. Uh, just everything imaginable and unimaginable. That, you, you know, <laughs> Grand Noir, you know, the only juice that would run actually red, uh, you know, Cab Merlot. Chesla. Uh, Chesla. Yeah, Chesla. <laughs> so, yeah, just all kinds of varieties. So, yeah, down there, you're just like, you know, that's, that'd be the heart of the kid in the candy. So, a lot of that's gone now. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, there still is actually Carmo. They planted the uh, rootstock block at Woodhall Vineyard, mm -hmm. uh, which is still there. We planted that in 97. And uh, that's got one row of Chesla in there, that Carmo. She was from Switzerland. and. Um, so she, yeah, we made sure that was in there. So we're still. So the reason you, we, we keep bringing up Woodhall is so Oregon State, like I said, has the research vineyard, and what they don't use for research used to just go to home winemakers, but they kind of got sick of managing that. Well, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but I feel like it kind of <laughs> is. Um, so because Matt had the connection with OSU and Woodhall Vineyard, now we get all the fruit from there. So whatever is left, so literally the Shesla, the little bits of things we get. And we do <laughs> whatever we can with it. So yeah, so I guess, yeah, a lot of our- Which our, is a gift too, because we have like 1976 year old Pinot vines uh, and the Chardonnay is around there too. The yeah. old 108 clone, 108. which is hard to find the wow. Chardonnay. So we have two vineyards that have the old 108 clones of Chardonnay, which is beautiful. And um, another 30 year old vineyard that we have, that's just a couple of miles down the road that we get that Chardonnay from too. So. We have a lot of good 
really old vineyards that just people don't even think around here, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I can get into more. I mean, there's a lot of aged vineyards that we have that we get some specialty stuff from. So there's, and it's, it's kind of grown our product line too. Like as Tabitha mentioned, you know, we're starting to get all the fruit from Woodhall, whatever's not being used. Um, for research purposes, we just agree to buy whatever's left. And so we're doing a vineyard designate now. You know, we weren't much into the vineyard designate Pinot Noirs, those type of things. Uh, big thing is just, you know, our vineyards maybe weren't well as known here. So, um, but as we've now come out with a couple uh, vineyard designates that we uh, bottle under our Compton family wine label, um, and Woodhall's one of those. And it's just, we take the original Pinot Noir block. Uh, there's three quarters of an acre still of the uh, vines that were planted in 1978 in uh, Pomard and Vadensville. <laughs> and so just, you know, great big old gnarly vines, just beautiful things on the hillside down there. So we do a little bottling. So we're able to get that. The researchers don't really want to do any research on those vines. They're just, you know, and so a lot of the, a lot of the research being done on the newer plantings and stuff like that down at Woodhall. So we're, we're lucky that the vines are still in and we're able to uh, make some wine out of that. And so they're the, real supportive of it as well. The with university. the vineyard, doesn't it? We, before the pandemic, we were selling, we didn't sell in our tasting room. We sell back to OSU to promote the vineyard because a lot of people at Oregon State don't even know that they have that vineyard. And we, so we have the labels so they would use that for events and such too. Yeah, so it's helping those, helping them with this. When Mark Chen was um, at the university, uh, you know, he was helping to promote it too as well. Uh, he was really supportive, which was great. And so they were, yeah, there's all the way up, you know, the, there was a lot of drive and excitement and especially when you get a good rating on it and stuff too. Yeah, then they, to get good ratings. <laughs> then they really enjoy that as well. This year, I think it got a 92, something like that. So just every year it seems to do well. That's awesome. You mentioned uh, uh, the Compton Family Wines, your new new label, undergoing a new rebrand. Tell me about the, the process of rebranding this far into your business and, and how it's gone so far. Where do we start? <laughs> um, well, we re officially rebranded January 2020, um, but it's been, we've been working on it for a while. There was another company who we um, that had the Spindrift name that we've been talking with trademark-wise for a very long time. So. Uh, about five years ago, Matt and I had a, another run-in with uh, uh, a communication with this other company, <laughs> and we had said, you know, what if we have worked this many years and then we just don't have anything? So it was the fact of let's come up with our own name or, or something that more represents us, because our distributors were asking for more of a story behind our product too. And they you know, the Spindrift was a little bit more generic. So if we could get more of a story, so we said, let's go with the, the last name. So we have a, we started out with our gray label, which is our old vine, kind of our collector series. Um, I don't know if a, a little bit more serious brand would, I'm not sure, but we tried to make it a little bit more formal. Um, and we've had that for now a couple years, right? You're good with the years, a couple years. Yeah, well, we, yeah, our first bottling of the, we. We saw this brand changing coming, so we started it with a little bit more of the, where our our we planned. our gray label, our really old vine series, and you know, so yeah, we were planning for it. Uh, so we started with our first bottling of 2014 in that, 
and then really got it rolling in 2015 vintage. Um, and so the idea is these are specific uh, blends of vineyards of, so. The growing region. Of the glowing region. So, what, what, so essentially for us, we, um, our vineyards run from essentially Fulhamith Corvallis area down to the Alpine area. And um, 2008, we planted a, got into a vineyard down there where we planted, worked with a family farm down there, a vineyard called Bovine Vineyard, and it used to be old cattle grazing ground. And we put in, uh, they were interested in the grapes and stuff like that, so we put about a three and a half acre vineyard in down there. That became one of our vineyard designates as well. Uh, so when we started the gray label, what, under the Spindrift, when we were Spindrift sellers, uh, our, our biggest production was obviously Willamette Valley. Uh, we would do some barrel selects, we would do some uh, reserves and stuff like that. Um, but what I found is uh, the Philomath the area, our vineyards that are really close to one another, just south of Philomath, off of Llewellyn Road, mm -hmm. we have three of them down there. And with, as a crow flies, they're all within a mile apart. And they're all vineyards that are 20 years old is the youngest, Deerhaven. Uh, there's okay. another one that's 30, over 30 years old, and then Mary's Peak, Roger Connors Place, which is well over 40 years old. And so what, we, what I liked is um, coming out with more of a cuvées of those areas. Mm -hmm. So we essentially, well, we came out with under the gray, uh, the old vine, the gray label, uh, the Compton Wine series is, we came out with a Llewellyn cuvée the blend of those three vineyards. Then we came up with an Alpine Cuvée, which is a blend of the vineyards down in the Alpine area. Mm -hmm. And those seem to be doing rather well. The Llewellyn series has continually received great reviews. Um, so I feel like I, as I evolved from the Spindrift and the vineyards that we had, we kind of were able to start selecting out a little bit more and coming out with more, something that of wines a little more interesting mm -hmm. uh, that showed well uh, of that area rather than I guess the overall of our Willamette Valley blend, which was a blend of maybe five, six mm -hmm. different vineyards or so. I feel like this was probably the most organized we've been in a rebrand though, <laughs> because we knew it was coming and we really, really worked hard to plan for it. We took a long time. We thought we would have the new label cranked out in a month or two, and it, it took us six to nine months. And um, we're pretty happy with the, the rebrand from Spindrift Cellars. We have another label that's not the gray label. It's our, called our Garden Series. <laughs> And we went through so many different evolutions to get there. Um, but again, it goes back to when I first said we were foodies. We, um, we, all of our money is really wrapped up right here in our winery. And um, so we don't, we had a small house and a huge garden that our, we have three boys that we lived on and we pretty much lived and grew what we could eat mm -hmm. um, outside of the meat that we would get from like bovine vineyard. <laughs> you know, we fed our family out of our garden. So we, um, most of the time we make everything from scratch. And yeah, so that's why we kind of went with the garden label mm -hmm. and sustainable. Yeah, so the, the replacement, so they're under the new brand, we have the Compton Family Wines, the Garden Series, which is. And on the label it says Compton Family Wines. Yeah. And, and then the other one just says Compton. The other one just says Compton on it for a little bit more of our more defined Mulder mm -hmm. yeah. Vine series. Type. And we also have our Bubbles too, which is a CO2, which is a sparkling wine. Because why not? I mean, I have a whole bunch of brands, lots of wines we have to sell. So that, that brand is just our sparkling wines and a percentage of the proceeds goes to Oregon State Marine Science Center um, for that brand. And there's a rosé and a white that we do of the bubbles. Mm. That's a, a pretty, I think it's a pretty fun label. It's, it was just more 
um, it was just fun and I, it, not quite as serious. So we wanted to keep it separate and have it not be within the other look. It's a great looking label. I've always liked the CO2. So, Thanks. Yeah, that's, <laughs> awesome. that's awesome. Yeah, it was fun to do. There was a, um, Neil Williams is a artist out of Eugene and he does concert posters for like Dave Matthews band and stuff. And so he designed the label. It was, he did a great job. Um, it took a little while to get that design because if you ever look at his artwork, which is Epic Problems, I think it is, design, it's amazing his work he does. And it's so detailed. So when he first did it, I'm like, all right, that's not going to work on a wine label. We've got to minus a few things in there. But it's gorgeous, the stuff he did, yeah. I'm curious about uh, something you talked about with uh, kind of as, as you've grown, you're doing a lot of different cuvées, a lot of different blends. Uh, tell me about the, the process of that for you and what you want a cuvée, especially of, uh, of a certain area, to, to represent. What, 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 are you, what are you looking for in the bottle uh, as you're blending together? So, again, the Llewellyn series is the older vines, so I guess I really, what I just love about the older vines is they really start calming down. Uh, and that's, you know, not as fruit driven, uh, show a lot more complexity. Um, so we're, again, we're just, it's a blend of uh, the three vi different vineyards and it's just three different clones. Uh, Mary's Peak, it's Vadensville. So I love the nice spiciness that comes from the Vadensville, the old clone Vadensville. Uh, Hooten House Cellars, which is another vineyard that's 30 years old right there. Uh, those vines are over about 30 years old, this pomard fruit. So you get the nice red fruit, you know, all those aspects. Then Deerhaven Vineyard has uh, 115, which kind of somewhat of the workhorse, I think, of the industry. It's kind of the, you know, it's just, you know, it's a nice dark fruit to it and stuff. Um, so we make them all, so we bring the fruit in. For the most part, we make a lot of them separately. I do have two wood fermenters, uh, one of them that I use for the Llewellyn. And so we do. Uh, we'll, we will do a actual uh, blend in the wood fermenter of each vineyard there. But then we'll kind of play off of it to see how the vintage is to get the nice balance. Mm -hmm. So I guess for me, it's always you know the baseline of it is like cooking. You know, uh, the you know you just good ingredients. You know, a little bit of salt and pepper. You know, type of thing just to kind of spice it up. So wine making, you know, great ingredients. You know, use some wood, um, oak barrels, not too much. You know use the oak barrels to bring in the more the spiciness, more the complexity, you know, but keep the rawness of the fruit. Um, so I guess to go back in time uh, when we did start, you know, you know, we started Saheli Wine Cellars and uh, this is back in early 2000s and there's a little festival up in Portland called the Indie Wine Festival. So like, yeah, why not? Let's go up there and go pour some wine and at the Indie Wine Festival. And so it's kind of based on small, small wineries, small productions. And we're poor, I don't know, I think I was up. You were doing it. I was doing it. And uh, there's a lot of people there and stuff going through. And uh, David Lett came through and tasted. And he was very complimentary and stuff. And like, oh, that was cool. Got the pour <laughs> for David Lett. And then later I saw Jason. And Jason's like, yeah, he's like, there are two wines he liked there. And, he, and that was one of them. So I was like, wow, that was pretty cool. So, uh, so I, I guess, you know, the style always was that really fruit driven type of thing. Uh, so continue to keep that style uh, really true to the grape, um, true to the farming style, but yet, you know, just give it enough other compliments to help, you know, round it out, you know, bring in the salt and pepper just to round it out, you know, with the oak barrels and that kind of stuff and really, but continue to try to minimal handle 
Yeah. And uh, I tell people that in the vineyard too. You start in the vineyard with the Salmon Safe Life certified. You know, you still kind of farm that way. It's minimal handling in the vineyard all the way through the yeah. kind of winemaking. And I think the mm -hmm. toughest thing we run into as winemakers is allowing the vintage to express itself. And in Oregon, there definitely is a lot of vintage, mm -hmm. you know, showing. Uh, being a cooler climate, so you know those leaner years. Some of the, you know, the back in. 97, 07, those wet vintages, you know, they just got kind of written off by the critics, but God, they just turned into just beautiful wines mm -hmm. uh, that just aged so well. And uh, great acidity, you know, light, but just pretty in, as anything. So, um, so yeah, it's trying not to overreact, I guess, you know, on some of those, those, those years and just try to let it go and hopefully and get the consumer to understand that, you know, there is vintage variation. What year was it? It was super rainy. It was, it was a couple of years ago. I remember you getting full in the middle yeah. of the night and everybody going, oh my gosh, Matt, because like, people would just call him <laughs> and what do I do? And he's like, I don't know, I'm, gonna, I'm not getting up and going out there. <laughs> There's nothing you can do at this point. You know, farming's farming. Just hunker down. He's like, are you worried you didn't get everything in? He's like, I can't do anything now. <laughs> yeah, and you know, in those type of years too, like 2013, you know, um, You've, I guess when you have enough experience, you can know what you can play with and let things go. And, uh, and I, th I feel like we fared out well on I mean, even a year like that. Uh, we did have one, there was one block of actually at Mary's Peak, um, he has two acres of conversion meter. And we're like, it rained and then the sun came out and we're like, all right, let's let it dry out and let it go. And just uh, in two days, it just, erupted with botrytis and just was unpickable. And so it's kind of like, all right, well, there, there's one loss where Mother Nature wanted without even beater, but, um, so yeah, so it's, you know, it's, so our style, long way around, uh, you know, it's just continued to sh really define what those vineyards are, are, are like. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just so, all so different, mm -hmm. and especially um, the, with, within the area that we're working, you know, if Alpine is about 20 miles, 20 miles south of here. Uh, so, you know, just a lot of topography differences, soil differences, farming style differences that have, you know, rootstocks and all that kind of stuff. So uh, really honing in on just, yeah, having that style. Uh, the Alpine Cuvée, a little bit uh, warmer down there in the Alpine. So a little bit more younger vine, a little more fruit driven style. Uh, that's the Alpine 2015, I think, has been our highest rated Pinot Noir. Um, so, you know, those are really consumer friendly kind of wines that come out of that. Um, with the, uh, the Llewellyn series, the older wines, you know, they're a little more elegant. We're giving them more time before trying to come out with them mm -hmm. as well. So what are the the biggest changes you've seen in, in the Oregon wine industry since you've been a part of it. What's, what's different now and since, uh, since, I mean, 25 years, basically, you've been around the industry. Tell me what, what, what it looks like now versus what it looked like then. Well, I can say, I kind of mentioned a little bit of it. It, it was fun to sell because you would go in and especially when I would sell in Washington, people were like, oh, Oregon, it's so great. And even in Bend, I could fill my trunk up and sell it in a day and run back. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's a huge saturated market now. Um, it's still fun, but it's just different. And the ratings don't really mean so much uh, just because there's, again, so much wine out there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, um, so you know, marketing-wise, it's just it's it's creative it's, and evolving and the marketing is definitely the, I think the hard part of the, with the growth. Um, we're what producing around four million cases of wine, and there's only about four million people in the state. So, um, so yeah. So we're obviously we we have to get out of state, and you know, and so with the challenges that go with that. Uh, We've tasted in Napa, and um, people are like, "Oh, you're you're just a." 9,000 case wine, you must sell all that right out of your tasting room. <laughs> like, uh, no. We're, I mean, people would assume because we're right on, like I said, the highway and people coming in from the coast are like, you must be packed all the time. And we do well, but it's just not. It doesn't sell itself. No, it doesn't. And yeah. So for me, you know, within the changes within the industry, it, um, I'm, again, we're kind of out of the main hub of it. So we're not, we're kind of, we're, we have three pretty much close to teenage, you know, uh, teenage boys and stuff like that that up to this point have been very active in sports and now we're, that's changed a lot. But um, so, you know, between running our businesses and the kids and stuff, you know, we haven't been as involved, mm -hmm. you know, I backed off the live program, you know, not as many industry things. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I'm kind of somewhat isolated down here. So, uh, you know, the change, the growth and that kind of stuff. So I guess, you know, a lot of the changes that I see is um, for us is just more of, you know, a competition of trying to, if you have fruit available, you know, to sell, uh, trying to sell to some other wineries, you know, uh, up north uh, or, you know, things that you don't have as much of a relationship with maybe as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but you do know a lot of people in the industry from the years and uh, people that have moved around. The other thing too is I guess, you know, just I guess going back to in Oregon, which style, what, which direction is Oregon gonna go? How many AVA, how many sub-AVAs are we gonna create? You know, how, you know, how many different stories are we gonna tell within an industry where there's only so many wineries that are only, you know, and the industry can't grow that fast, uh, you know. I guess you know the big thing that we're the Oregon wine industry now is going through is the generational change in ownership and who who's going to take over that vineyard. And so that's where we see more money coming in. Uh, I mean, it's Benton Lane was previously purchased as well, which is one of the big ones in the area. There's some other vineyards, you know, that are for sale in the area, but they're being deciding on who they want to sell to and not sell to type of thing. Uh, so I think, you know, this area that we're in has a lot of great vineyard potential. I could foresee more things happening down in our area uh, with growth, but um, there's a, just a limitation to how quickly you can put grapevines in in Oregon and with water and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, just, it, I would kind of hope we really in Oregon really define what our sustainability goals are, um, those type of things, and marketing and all that. And Well, I think when everybody started, they did such a great job yeah. in Oregon and, I mean, just the Willamette Valley. The um, I'm going to keep going on the, the skirt tails of the Willamette Valley because when I go out and sell outside of the state, I mean, that's what everybody gets. But now the buzz is, oh, are you an AVA and I, a different AVA? And I'm like, no, we are. Southern Willamette, and even when I go to Eugene, they're like, what, are you guys, are you part of our Southern Willamette? So it, it is kind of a mess with all of that and understanding it all, but. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I'm happy to just call myself Willamette Valley because that's what everybody knows, and mm -hmm. especially outside of the state. And that's what's important is telling the story to everybody else so they buy Oregon wines too. We created a local Benton County area um, group called Heart of the Willamette. You know, we have that for marketing wise for kind of tourist. Um, yeah, because we're in marketing. the middle of the state. Yeah, yeah. and then. Um, then, you know, the, yeah, like Tabitha mentioned, there's one down in southern Oregon, or, I mean, or, or southern Willamette Valley, Eugene area, where they're trying to market themselves down there as well, too. So, um, and a lot of those are just, you know, for I think it works tourism. for Oregon, yeah, for yeah. Oregon tourism, but outside of the state when you're selling, yeah, yeah Willamette Valley is really what's, yeah, what's the, out there, what's the people understand. That's, how, that's changed a lot, obviously, since you started selling wine, too. Oh, yeah, I yeah. Mean, the, the, and that's the, why, yeah, I even mentioned it. It's mm -hmm. amazing. That's amazing. Uh, you talked about sort of the, the saturation of the market and having to be kind of creative and nimble to sell wine. And I'm curious, what, what has changed about how you tell your story or about how you sell your wine? Um, that, or what do you see changing as you look ahead from, from a sales perspective? Well, just a silly thing to think when we started that neither of us had a smartphone and now we, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and I still can't selfie very well, but um, I mean, all of that sort of pieces that you never thought you'd have to do when you were making a product because you have to sell and market it too when we started. You know, and really, it's been us through this whole thing. It's Matt and I, and we have a couple for our size, we have a couple full time employees, and that's it. So we kind of do everything. So we have to learn all different aspects of being the sales and marketing mm -hmm. and piece of it all. Yeah, it's just evolving and changing so fast and um, you know and to become when you're not a brand on a grocery store shelf you know you're and so you're targeting you know restaurants and that kind of so it's it's then it's you know really getting your salespeople understanding your story and trying to reach out to them specifically mm -hmm. and get their attention for a little bit and uh, where there are so many brands and Fewer distributors and more wine brands and yeah. stuff like that, but um, so, but we we've been able to successfully yeah. feel like some of our best distributors are again ones that have contacted us. So mm -hmm. and we still have long term relationships with mm -hmm. them and keeping this you know keeping them informed in the story. I mean, our our best distributor was up in Washington before <laughs> COVID hit, and mm -hmm. hopefully they can keep on rolling. But these are people that we just met. The guy used to fill up his van with run down here and pick up Oregon wine and then go back and he did it multiple times and we met him over dinner you know those mm -hmm. relationships used to have a lot more than I feel like you do now everything's I don't know if I'd say impersonal but it's harder to develop those relationships because mm -hmm. mainly cold calls and that you're having to do those cold calls finding distribu distributors you know that's not something we really had to do because it was right there mm -hmm. yeah. What about with your, I'm curious if, if having distributed yourselves, having created your own distribution company, if that changes how you view it at all, or if that gives you any kind of advantage oh, totally. for selling? Okay. Yeah. Uh, when, you, when I go out and sell and work with people, I have a lot of opinions about it and how it's done, and I try to politely carry on. and. Mm -hmm. um, but I do when I talk to the owners after, you know. Well, my, my dad was involved in the company too, and uh, he, he comes from a computer sales background, and some of my brother's in sales. So, you know, I sat on a lot, of, a lot of their talks of sales, which I don't really think applies so much to wine because it's hard to sell in a sales aspect of, uh, people just think of like the car salesman sort of thing. But there's, there's 
I think with wine, people are kind of pretty, they're laid back, they're really laid back. So I used to make appointments and, and I'd show up and people weren't there and I would show up and just be very organized on, on the appointments and such. And um, again, when we did our own distribution, you know, there's not many people that even ask for a sale at the end of a sale, you know, and I promote my people in the tasting room, I'm like, Do, would you like to take a bottle? Do you like the wine? You know, just asking sort of questions of that sort of thing. But yeah, there's always, just simple things that you could just ask for um, when you're out selling wines, but that, that's more for me of having an opinion once we were our, at our own sales and distribution company too. Um, yeah, I don't know. There is, but what was nice with our own distribution company is it was we had a book because it was all other small wineries in the area. So we had because we were the way we were running it, the salespeople got more money and the distributors got, they, mm -hmm. excuse me, the other wineries got more money too. So this was a, a job if people really wanted to take it on that they could go do run their own thing and do on their own, right? Mm -hmm. That they could, if they wanted to be successful, but it was really hard finding people that would want to be, give it the, the attention and get to the grindstone. We had a couple people that were amazing and kind of took ownership and wanted to do it on their own. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. yeah, yes, there's a, there's opinions. <laughs> opinions now. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times uh, the pandemic. Obviously, we're talking to you in August 2020, and we're still dealing with uh, the the pandemic and, and kind of an uncertain future. I'm curious how it's affected your, your wine lives. Obviously, there I know there is, that's entwined with your personal life as well, uh, and sort of how it's uh, changed your view of, of maybe the future for yourself or for the industry, if, if at all. Yeah, well, we rebranded in January. So what do we, March, April? So yeah, this has been difficult for us, for sure. It's um, the tough part. And the tough part of the rebranding and the COVID thing is, you know, with our distributors that we're working with, uh, you know, we're, we're there moving into the new brand. And unfortunately, they're not able to be out and make visits and pour yeah. and all that kind of stuff and really help so, tell the story. So, uh, you know, so it was just a very unfortunate timing. Uh, for us of rebranding in the year where everybody is shut down. Uh, and, but again, you know, uh, local market-wise, uh, people just been greatly supportive. Um, we, Tabitha, st started doing, uh, deli we started doing deli home deliveries. We got, yeah, you know, what else? Free local delivery. I mean, we're just trying to be so creative of just marketing, just simple things of just marketing. We put signs on our cars yeah. and driving around just so people can see locally that we're out there. And, and I do have people like literally went to the dentist and people were like, oh, I just saw that the other day. So just <laughs> simple things of so people communicate and talking in the community. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a big piece of it. Um, but yeah, not having to sample it out has been difficult. But again, we we're, I don't know if lucky is the right word because I feel like you're a great winemaker, um, but we just came out with some nice reviews on the new brands too. So mm -hmm. that helped, but also not making it fly out the door under the circumstances too. Mm -hmm. but. Mm -hmm. but yeah, so hopefully, you know, it, as people are home and you think about more local things, hope you, you know, we were hoping to, we've been targeting, try to, you know, get more interest in, you know, people letting, uh, on a local scale, know that we're here and the deliveries. Um, the local, our, our wine club like you said, is good and our local support has been just. Been fantastic, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're, uh, we're in between, we're looking to get into a little bit of property ourselves and actually uh, have, you know, have a farm where we're looking to go. Uh, so our kids are, we have 30 chickens at home 
the house right now. Uh, the boys are, our three boys are interested, you know, in being a part of that too. And so it, that the whole COVID thing, the reset thing, I guess that we're all going through, uh, we're hoping to kind of get into where we can create that farm life for the family uh, and have that portray into our story more and hopefully promote that idea a little bit more of, you know, and get people thinking about local uh, Corvallis is going to be interesting. See, you know, it's just so heavily dependent upon the university. Uh, see what happens there with the university mm -hmm. system. Uh, unfortunately, our the restaurants here locally are really affected as many, but uh, just this town is, you know, Corvallis area is just so heavily dependent on uh, without sports happening this um, fall. Mm -hmm. So we won't have, you know, obviously, you know, the tourist thing's down, everything's down. So. Uh, which is very unfortunate, and so. Um, but I've just in the last few weeks, I'm actually getting quite a bit of tourists. People just driving around, which is cool, but a little scary as well. <laughs> there are people out and about coming from multiple other states, so mm -hmm. it's still happening. It's just different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, we've taken a ton of precautions here and uh, and changed things around here so we can have more seating. And we just do seated tastings rather than people standing up and traveling around because we are all about cleaning and then cleaning and cleaning some more. <laughs> and, it's, and it's also made us take things up a notch too. We set up some outdoor seating, uh, which is all new. We did a nice little um, fence out, you know, barrel stay fence out there. Uh, so I, uh, we, with the rebranding that happened, we painted the building. Uh, so the community has been very uh, thankful for, we are in an industrial area of, of Philomath. And so uh, we, are taking steps to make it, you know, not look so industrial, and uh, but yet it is still a, you know, manufacturing area. Yeah. We never had downtime. We were we've been busy the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, typically, we like we are off doing sports all the time. So this is our first time to actually. Yeah, we've been able to without kids sports. It's actually we've gotten yeah, a lot done. Our, yeah, we've gotten a lot, a lot done here. It's not that the business gets ignored, but we've been more efficient for sure. <laughs> Amazing how that works. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, also good that you're winemakers already, so you're used to cleaning all the time anyway. That's right. So, oh, yeah. it's not, so nothing, nothing has changed. Nothing's changed. Just the bathrooms more. Yeah. Well, you've talked, you talked a little bit already about some, some, some of the future plans. So tell me about, uh, as you look ahead for yourselves and for Comp Family Wines over the next five, 10 years, what do you, what do you kind of see happening? So our, we, we have plans to, uh, again, we're trying to get into a farm. Uh, what we'd like to actually do is we're actually, we're also looking at open, we, before COVID, we were looking at opening a second location actually here in Philomath and get back into the food uh, scenario and kind of play into the whole idea of the garden series of, you know, growing some fruit, some vegetables, raising some animals. Uh, tying that into with the wine as well and also uh, we're looking to expand it to a second location where we would offer up some food is uh, kind of step up the wine tasting experience um, and we're really kind of limited here with what we can do so uh, I guess our future is you know as we talked about distribution being coming more and more difficult is really owning on trying to really step up our continue to Retail, step up our own yeah retail and our own following and uh, try to make, create another spot that can become more of a destination with a good 
beyond just wine, but also a food experience as well. Grass doesn't grow under our feet. Our, my friends always sit there going, you, what are you doing now? Like, what are you doing this? Where do you have time? And I'm like, you just don't look back. You just keep moving forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a shark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't stop swimming. I guess, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's how we came into the, you know, came into the business, you know, just uh, creativity of, you know, to just, you obviously, you know, as they say, the best way to make a million bucks, you know, in the wine industry, start with 10 million. And so unless you're able to start with that 10 million, um, you know, so for us, it's just diversify and trying to react to the times. And, uh, you know, and obviously within the 25 years, you know, we've seen the ups and downs, you know, 2000, the fall of 2008, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, so just, and we were able to survive through it and just continue to get creative. And so, mm -hmm. um, so there, our next step in you have big plans. Taking creative is <laughs> more big plans. <laughs> and again, you're, you know, it, we'll see if we get any of that accomplished. Yeah, we'll see what we'll see how it goes. But again, it, it's just in this area where we feel like there is the potential for it, just because it's not saturated with mm -hmm. so many other wineries and stuff too. So. And pretty exciting to have your children in, in, interested potentially in becoming part of it too. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's. Uh, they were always here with us, kind of working, yeah. even when my, our first one was little, back when they were legal to have those little tray things where they could walk around the, the little <laughs> walkers. Yeah, he would, we would just rope him off with little, um, with the hoses, and he'd just hit one and go the other way. And By five, he knew how to work a wine thief, too, and could pour wine samples for people, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they, they uh, They've always, yeah, they've, so they've grown, they've grown up in it and stuff. And so, uh, you know, and they've been always, you know, they like uh, supportive. Yeah, so. they all, <laughs> they have to work. <laughs> they have to work. My last question for you. Um, I'm curious, uh, we always like to ask couples who've been together a long time and have a, have a business together about the sort of the secret to success when it's work life, personal life, all kind of blended together. How do you keep a lasting relationship in the, in the wine industry? In the wine industry? <laughs> I don't know. I think one of the best advice I heard is never let one person fall out of love at the same time. <laughs> so I, I kind of go off that. And somebody's got to be the fighter there, but definitely it's... it's well, and, I mean, we're just... Having the business together is... And it, we're just... Um, we, her interest is, again, she, you know, we're always, always more of the sales type of side. Um, where she was willing to get in the car and go, you know, go off and make those appointments to sale. Where I'm not, that's not exactly at my own, where I'd much rather be out farming and doing the manual labor and that kind of stuff. So, um, we, we stay busy doing different things, but yeah. 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 So, I think, you know, by us each having our own departments and stuff, and uh, Tabitha runs the tasting room, she runs the, you know, it's, uh, she tries to show me the point of sales and. If, unless I'm using it all the time, I don't remember. So I just try to not do it or otherwise I'll mess up. So, you know, it just, we, yeah, we got, uh, we both you, keep this whole thing running. You know, we each, you know, take on certain things and we're not, the paths aren't crossing over, but yet communicate to what, you know, what is going on. And when you're producing so many different products, but also selling so many different products too. So yeah, just, trying to keep that story going and we seem to be agreeing and moving forward on it. <laughs> With brand changing, yeah. Uh, we, 
We stay busy. We stay busy. We, I guess. That's what we do. It's, we just stay busy. You definitely never take the easy route. That's so the easy that's, route. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I appreciate that. It's yeah. blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both. That's all the questions I have. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should cover? I think we threw a lot at you. <laughs> a thank lot you. to go through. Thank yes. you so much yeah. for, thank you. For, for joining, for, for hosting us here in your beautiful site and, yeah. uh, and uh, for your stories and time. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank Great. You. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.